So Romans chapter 8 is where we find ourselves today in our journey through the great epistle of the apostle to the church at Rome and to us. And one of the best things uh, I ever did as a young man was to memorize scripture. I was uh, encouraged in this by a particular teacher that... uh, spoke of how it transformed his life, and so I sought to devote myself to this uh, in my latter years in college and on into seminary, and uh, I particularly was able to take advantage of the long drives that I had between Florida, my home, and Mississippi, where I went to seminary. Back in the days, it was 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, so it was a long drive, Uh, but uh, plenty of opportunity then to devote my mind to the Word, and so I was able to memorize Ephesians and Philippians, about seven or eight Psalms, a lot of Proverbs, and I memorized Hebrews 12 and Romans chapter 8. Many who love God's Word love this chapter we're in now as much or more than any other. It is indeed quite, quite rich, and we're going to spend about six Sundays uh, we, did, we did Romans 7 in one Sunday, huh? That was okay? <laughs> we got going to spend about six Sundays in, in Romans chapter 8. Today, the first four verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit." I would, uh, I would spend a bit of time in verse 1, except for the fact that the proposition in that verse has been covered several times over, really, since the middle of chapter 3 of Romans. It is, however, a great and important verse. Romans 8.1 is a very good verse to memorize for sure, in part because it is short, <laughs> and we do value that don't we? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Say it with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, back in the day, I learned a a little chorus on that verse that if I'm ever prone to forget it, I won't because, you know, music has this extraordinary capacity to sink things into your your brain. And so... uh, If you know it, you're welcome to join with me in singing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
I'll stop there. And I learned something from watching commercials. Uh, they don't always have to be enjoyable to be memorable. <laughs> so uh, my song may not be enjoyable for you, but it maybe helps sink the verse in a little more deeply into your, ah, oh, I can't get that pastor singing out of my brain. <laughs> but at least as you remember my singing, you remember this important brief expression of the essential gift of the gospel, no condemnation. That's an important promise in light of the reality that the entirety of Adam's race finds itself naturally under condemnation. We are condemned in Adam. We are condemned because of our own transgressions. So to find out that we are now not under condemnation, well, that's the biggest, that's the greatest news imaginable because no matter what today may bring, if I am being executed tomorrow, it's going to be hard to maintain my joy. You know, skydiving may be, uh, may be really fun for some of you. How many of you have been skydiving? Raise a hand. Okay. Not apparently a real popular thing, but for some people, it's, it's, it's very, very fun. Uh, but never if you discover early in the jump that your parachute uh, is broken. We, uh, we will never, we're never ready to face a terminal death. But here comes the gospel. No condemnation. That's the negative expression of it. What's the positive? If you, if you put it in the positive, what word implies no condemnation? And we've talked of this word several times in Romans. Well, that would be the word. Starts with J, and no, it's not Jesus. It is justification, okay? Condemnation, justification, they're kind of parallel concepts opposite of each other. Justification means more than just no condemnation, but it certainly includes the idea that the condemnation for my sin is no longer mine to bear. So one little word, uh, word in, in verse one I find interesting is that word now. Therefore, there is now. The word now could mean finally now, or it can mean already now. now. Now, you know the difference, even if you've never thought about this before. We say, now you tell us, by which you mean what? You should have told us before. <laughs> or we could say, you can have it all right now, by which we mean already now, you don't have to wait. I think the point here is the latter of those. When are we justified? Say it with me. Rhymes with cow. Now. <laughs> Mind you, this is distinct from the understanding of our Roman Catholic friends who see justification as only coming at the judgment. But Paul teaches that we have it whenever we have faith in the Lord Jesus and thus are in him. The point is that there is more coming for us in Christ, but already our condemnation is gone. Why is this the case? How is it that a holy God can make such a pronouncement as this. It is because of so much that we have covered already in Romans. The propitiation, the redemption, the blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never think or imagine that you are not condemned because, well, after all, you are really a good person. You are not a good person, not guiltless. Oh no, we are not condemned because of what we are or where we are. 
I should say, we are not condemned because of where we are, which is in Christ. You see, Paul is by no means a universalist who thinks everyone gets eternal life. No, no. He says you have to be in a particular place. You have to be in Christ. That is where justification is found, and only there, and not everyone is in Christ. Many remain outside of him in unbelief, separated from Christ, still in Adam and in their sin. Condemnation is their lot. So how did you get into this place of privilege? Well, our passage tells us the very next verse points us to the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit who gives life. We must be born again of the spirit. This is how we get into Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who becomes to us wisdom from God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit, you see, is not just involved in our sanctification, but in our justification as well. He is the one who transfers us from being in Adam to being in Christ. And the Holy Spirit shows up very big in Romans 8, as we will see. So this wonderful first verse of our chapter, it's a great one to keep at the forefront of your thinking all the time. You may have found this out. There will be persons in your life who want to condemn you, <laughs> who will condemn you. Maybe they do it to justify themselves. Maybe they do it to gain leverage over you by manipulating you via your guilt. Anybody come to mind? The condemners in your life? For these, you need Romans 8, 1, to remind your heart of how God sees you, of what he has to say about you. Satan certainly wants to condemn you. That's his job. He's just doing his job. It's actually the meaning of his name, the accuser, the satanas. He uses humans, though, sometimes as his agents of condemnation. And for some of us, that primary human who's helping Satan in his condemning work is, it's you. <laughs> it's you. Oh, my goodness. You are your own worst critic. You condemn yourself. For such times as that, you need Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we hear the Lord's promise louder than our condemners and louder than the enemy. So that's the Lord's promise for those in Christ. Next we go on to see the Lord's purpose, and this is where we'll be the rest of our time. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law cannot do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. Now, before I focus on, on the purpose of God in our justification and our sanctification, let's clear up some possible confusions in the passage. Verse 2 starts with the transition word for. Uh, Paul is saying we are not condemned for, which some read as teaching that our sanctification, which he describes in the next few verses, leads to our justification. But this can be, and I argue should be understood, as a for that points out to the, points us to the evidence, not the uh, the evidence of our justification, not the cause of our justification. You see, justification, it is a legal reality. It's not something that is experienced or something that is empirical. No one can look at you and tell that you are justified. I've met people that think they can. <laughs> had a guy come to my door one time in Florida and he was selling something I forgive whatever he was selling and he, and he somehow found out I was a pastor and he, he looked at me and he said you know I can tell just by looking at people whether they love Jesus and my eyes brightened up and uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy that you really, I, had a, I had a staff member at that time Mark Bershay and Mark's eyes were always bloodshot I, mean, I never saw Jesus in Mark's eyes but I knew <laughs> that Mark loved, loved the Lord. Uh, so no one can look at you and tell if you're justified, but I can observe that your life has changed, that you're walking in faith and hope and love. If the spirit of life has set you free, that will be manifest, not perfectly, but to some extent, in your conduct, which enables us to conclude that you are in Christ and thus justified. You, you follow that? line of thought. The gospel teaches that justification <clears throat> leads to sanctification, but since only sanctification is observable at all, our awareness or our assurance of your justification, it goes in the other, other direction. We see your good works, your love for God, and we conclude that you are most likely in Christ and thus pardoned from your sin. And that is what the word for is for. And then verse 2 also presents us with this picture of competing laws, competing powers. Here the word law is not meant to refer to some written code. You know, it's like the law of, of gravity. It's a principle. I, I see a woman at the Pine Community Center, and she wears this sweatshirt most of the days. So she's in there, and it says, it says gravity. It's, it, there it is. It's not just a good idea. <laughs> it's the law. Gravity, you know what that is. It's a force. It's a principle of physics. Can it be set aside? I mean, you watch some of these guys in the NCAA tournament, and you're thinking, they don't seem to be confined by it. <laughs> but you and I can't. Uh, no, I, NASA maybe has found some way. I, I don't know how they get these, uh, these uh, weight-free chambers, but I, I don't know how. But what we do know about gravity is, is that some things, some laws can overcome it, right? Uh, helium, for example. I've been, I've been reading a book about helium. I, in fact, I'm almost done. I, I haven't been able to put it down. It's a book about helium, right? Right. Uh, but when we fly uh, somewhere in a jet, what's happening in, in that jet? What's going on? Does, does Delta set aside the law of gravity? Is that what they do? No, what do they do? They overcome the law of gravity 
with the power of those extraordinary jet engines that can lift up this tube of metal with 200 people in it into the clouds. Wow, but the law of gravity is still there. Verse 2 mentions the law of sin and death. The wages of sin we saw is death. Sin kills. It extinguishes life. But what is more powerful? The Spirit of God who gives life is more powerful. The Spirit breathed life into Adam. The Spirit gives new life to dead souls. The Spirit of God is mightier than death, like a jet engine is mightier than gravity. And, and, and that is why, you know, Spirit would be a great name for an airline. But hey, not a great airline, but a great name for an airline. But, but hey, like we've said before in Romans, our salvation has been won for us by Jesus, it not only delivers us from the guilt of sin, but from its power. Top lady in his well-known hymn says, be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Next, Paul mentions the law and the flesh. The law, weak because of the flesh, could not do something. What is it the law can't do? It cannot, could not, will not save us. It cannot give us victory over sin. Not because there's anything wrong with the law. My, my car doesn't fly, but it wasn't meant to fly. The law wasn't given for salvation. It's not fitted, you see, to our need as sinners. Someone wrote... To run or work the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and what else? It gives me wings. It also, by the way, gives me a pilot. Uh, to stay then with the flying illustration. You see, you could deliver to me a perfectly good airplane, but I would still not be able to fly. Why not? That's, that's not within my skill set, okay? Uh, or yours either, I expect, with a few exceptions among us. The problem would not be with the plane again, but with, with what? Where would the problem be there? The problem is with, with me. This is what the apostle is saying, and, and we should say it now. The problem is me. In fact, let's say that together. The problem is me. Yeah. So what do you need in that scenario well, with a plane, you also need a pilot to fly it, right? Someone who can fly the plane, who can do what you cannot. And now we're getting, now we're getting close to the gospel. So let's read on verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So I was blessed to encounter a man uh, when I was 18 who taught me a lot about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and he equipped me for ministry. He trained me how to be a witness for Jesus, 
and uh, share my faith with others, share the gospel with others. And this is how I was taught to share the gospel, you know, back in the last millennium, but I think it still applies. I would say to someone uh, in the course of my discussion with them, I would say, let's imagine, Ed, that all your sins are written here in this book, okay? It'd have to be a really thick book, a lot of sins, yeah? And, uh, you know, and, and so they're all written in here, and since God is holy, uh, these sins have become a barrier in your relationship to him. God is up here, pure and holy. You're down here, lowly and sinful, uh, you know, uh, guilty and, and corrupt. How can this barrier of sin be overcome so that we can be back in fellowship with God and enjoy him and his blessings? Well, some people teach that we must work hard to overcome the barrier climb over this barrier, keep certain rules, engage in certain rituals, do certain noble deeds. But the scripture clearly tells us that all of that is a lie. We cannot make up for our cosmic treason by trying harder or by keeping the rules. By the works of the law, says the Lord, no one will be made right with God. But, and this is the good part, what we could not do, God did. You see, we don't work our way up to him. We don't work our way over this barrier. But what happens? He comes down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You, you, you with me here? That's how we deal with this barrier. This is the good news. Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like a normal man, but he was without sin. And being without sin, he was able to become our offering for sin, our substitute, our sin bearer. This God-man Jesus then goes to the cross, and what happens there? Paul says that God condemns sin, punished sin in the flesh, not ours, but in the flesh of Jesus, the perfect Son of God. So let's go back to our gospel presentation, okay? So this barrier of sin separates us from God. What happens to it? Jesus descends from glory to us, becomes a man, keeps the law, goes to the cross as our substitute, and what happens there? In the words of Isaiah, the Lord lays on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Thus he clears away this barrier that is between us and our God. That is what Paul means when he writes about Jesus as an offering for sin. And now we come to verse four and our consideration of the purpose of God in our redemption. This is one of the clearest statements of all scripture and it links for us our justification and our sanctification in a way that I, I think is undeniable. These two saving works of God come together always in the redeemed man or the redeemed woman. So we see that all that God did in Christ was, verse four, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So we see that although law-keeping on our part does not make us right with God, it does not justify. Law-keeping actually results from our justification. We are not saved by obedience, but we are saved unto obedience. And this passage is hardly alone in the New Testament. There's more. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, the goal of our election. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we be holy and blameless before him. So the goal of our election, the goal of redemption, these are the same things. 
You understand that as God looks out at men, he sees us as fallen creatures, as a race that has rebelled against its maker. It's headed towards utter destruction. Men and women are depraved and blind and lost. But God, but God, out of his mercy, acted to rescue a certain portion of lost humanity and make them his special people, his chosen ones, his family. We read about how he began to do this way back in Genesis 12 when he reached down and he called this man Abram unto himself and he began setting apart this chosen people. And for a long time, this was mostly centered on one particular ethnic group, but then God sent a word saying, the people who walk in darkness, they shall see a great light. The kingdom of God became universal in scope and drew into it men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but all of this was God's plan together for himself a holy people. More verses, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I would have you see that this is what God is after. God is out to get for himself a people for his own possession, worshipers who are described by words like holy and obedient and pure. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And for what reason did he give himself up for the church? Next verse. So that he might, what's that say? Sanctify her. To sanctify is to make holy. Give me more of that verse. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be, what? Holy and blameless. Now, if you want a statement as to the intention of Jesus, it can't get any clearer than that. We are saved to be a holy people, a righteous people, a sanctified and a pure people. I like Titus 2, so we got to go there. Titus 2 uh, we're, speaks of us looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to, here's your purpose clause, to redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So what does that say the work of Christ is intended to do for us? It frees us from our sin our lawless deeds, it purifies us, it makes us zealous to do what is right and good. One more, 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout these various places, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, chosen for what end? To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Once again, I ask you, why does God choose us? Why does the Spirit work in us? Why did Jesus die on our behalf? The answer is always the same, ultimately, that we would obey the Lord and be the holy people in whom he takes delight. Now, I, I hope you're beginning to see what all this means for you. I, I hope you see that if our salvation is unto law-keeping, then the leading indicator of whether one is truly an object of Christ's redemption must be what? Law-keeping. John Stott says holiness is the very purpose of our election and the only sure evidence of it. Charles Hodge writes, for one who claims to be elected unto holiness to live in sin is an utter contradiction. 
But how on earth can we, we, weak sinners, walk in obedience to God's law? What does our passage say? By living according to the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, whom we know to be the Holy Spirit. Our reliance is not upon the law that we follow. Our reliance is even less than ourselves and our capacities and our commitments. It is in the Spirit of God. So when people join our church, they commit themselves to live as fits a follower of Christ. But the vow specifically notes that we undertake this grand goal. This is a phrase from our vow. In humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. So we begin by faith, we walk by faith, we persevere by faith, we triumph, you ready for this now? By faith, with the Spirit of God who sets us free from the law of sin and death and leads us into the victory of joyful obedience. So yeah, so we end the day. With this, if the goal of Christ's redemption is that we be obedient followers of God's word, what then should be the goal of our lives? Not complicated. <laughs> May I humbly suggest that wise persons line up their goals with God's goals. Well, hey, I, I know a goal. You know, I, I can't tell you in every area of life what God, what God is laying before you to pursue. Not, in, not everything. But I do know a goal you can pursue without any reservation, without any doubting as to whether it is God's will. First Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, your holiness, your obedience. You set your sights on obedience to God's word, on being like Jesus then you've lined up your goals with God's goals. Your purpose will match his purpose. You will know the power of God, and you will have success. Faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. We're going to close in prayer but a bunch of people are going to move right now. The musicians are going to walk this way. Those of you helping Amber with NPC will walk that way, and the rest of us will turn our attention that way and pray to the God of heaven for his grace in pursuing these things for which we so desperately need him. Traffic jam in the aisle. Hey, we need our bass player. Let him through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's go to the Lord together. Father, we bow before you now. Thankful for this extraordinary word that in Christ there is no condemnation for us. We bless you that your spirit has taken us and moved us out of Adam into Christ. And what a sweet, wonderful place it is to be and live and know your mercy. And to know your purpose as well. And so, Lord, we rejoice with Top Lady that your gospel brings a double cure to save us from the guilt of our sin and from the power of our sin. 
Lord, we know the first thing is completely accomplished. It is finished, and we're thankful for that. The latter is happening, and we pray that it would happen more thoroughly and completely and rapidly in our lives, that we would run towards your calling to be holy people, always humbly relying upon the grace of your Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have indwelt us. We pray that you would lead us and guide us, and as we learn more in the next few weeks about your ministry and the hearts and lives of believers, we pray that we would find ourselves a month from now more perfectly led by by you than ever before. And so these things we ask for in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King, amen.